welcome to this special episode of the History of European Theatre podcast. This is the first of a series of three episodes where I'm in conversation with theatre practitioners, talking mostly about Greek and very early theatre, and how the earliest plays still work for us today. All these conversations were recorded over Zoom, as at the time of recording we are only slowly coming out of the pandemic lockdown in the UK. This episode is with Rosie Beach, who is an actor and podcast producer. When I asked Rosie to introduce herself, she was very modest about her qualifications and didn't specifically mention that she has a master's degree in social anthropology. As you will hear, she brings some expert knowledge to the subject of performance in the ancient world. In conversation, we try to cover from the very earliest times through Greek and some aspects of Roman theatre, and it was a very free-flowing conversation, so I've left it as one episode, even though it runs to almost an hour. So, first off, I asked Rosie to introduce herself. Uh, So, my name is Rosie. Uh, I am a performer, and I have a background in uh, cultural anthropology, which uh, I think uh, means that I can talk with some level of insight on the subject of early theatre, um, uh, both from where it has taken us uh, into the present day in performing styles that still persist, um, and uh, of course in the way that structures are created, but also with a cultural view of how uh, the theatre was affected by Greek society and how it in turn affected that society right back. Can we start before the Greeks and just set the scene a little? We'll try. Um, because this is something I touched on in the very early episodes of the podcast, just really in the first episode, because obviously there's not that much information available in a written record or, or any sort of record, for a pictorial record for that matter. But the general consensus is, it seems to me, is that theatre derives from a desire to mimic uh, to, to copy and present ourselves to other people in a group. Would you, would you agree with that, for starters, that that probably is how this all starts? It's a, it's a very good theory, and I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think there's also, across cultures, there's also, there is a desire to commune with something bigger than yourself. Uh, and a lot of performance styles come from rituals that were performed uh, in in some sort of spiritual at least so um they so for instance there can be parallels drawn between um african ritual masks that were worn as part of dances as part of songs that were in their cases uh connected to their spiritual beliefs um and the greeks used then went on to use masks around the same time period and, uh, and Greek theatre started as devotions to Dionysus. So I think there's, as well as wanting to mimic and to uh, use mimicry to convey an emotion or story, I think there is also a very religious element to early theatre or early performance. At this point, I managed to ask a very rambling question for Rosie, which fortunately, as I control the editing, I can now put much better I was interested to know Rosie's thoughts on how cultural identity developed and was spread through the ancient world. There, People, obviously humans, travel. We like to travel. We are one of the only species that you will find everywhere on the world. There is not a spot on earth where we have not been. And that is incredible. <laughs> um, and so human societies would have come across each other, even if that just meant... Um, on the same continent or cross continents. Um, and there is evidence in Greek writing uh, and Ro- obviously Roman writing of uh, people coming from other countries to either visit, trade with, or live uh, in uh, these Hellenistic um, areas. So they would have communicated, if only just through trade. And it's amazing what you can end up talking about when you think you're just talking about business. You share ideas. And so there is a lot of, there's, a, there's good reason to think that these communities would have, would have shared ideas about, you know, performance. So to summarise hundreds of thousands of years of um, mankind in a few moments, man comes out of Africa, expands slowly, but then probably increasingly quickly as the, this uh, desire to find better land, to, 
discover, the, to satisfy natural curiosity, which also seems to be a very early trait in, in early man. And we end up eventually with this hub of what we might say was you know, a, a cultural area around the Mediterranean, mm. where people didn't have to work every moment of every day to live. They had time to think about things, to build monuments, to, to do all those things. So again, right at the beginning of the podcast, people might remember I talked about things like the Abydos Passion Play in Egypt, where uh, a huge festival was held because the, the bounty of the Nile meant that people had time to not worry about what they were going to eat next, but get that provided for them. And they could build props and monuments and statues and all of that stuff that then becomes a culture of a society. But it seems to me that's still a relig- essentially a spiritual or a religious thing rather than something for entertainment. It's, it's amazing how many things are related back to our perception of a higher power across community. I mean, for instance, the only forms of what you could call entertainment in early Britain was, it was all organised by the church. It was, music had to be kind of proofread and accepted by um, by uh, authorities, religious authorities, before it could be performed. And it was the same, somewhat the same, um, for some of these communities uh, in, in Greece, where these performances, even though they were in some ways frivolous and they were, they were ways of entertainment, they also had a deeper important meaning to these people, these communities, these, the early processions that incorporated uh, recitation, music and mime um, that were performed by the followers of Dionysus, even though they were having a really good time and they were having fun, this was still, this was their way of communing with their God. And it was it, much like singing hymns today in church. You were communing with uh, a higher power. And even then, when the plays later on, when they were written and, uh, and designed to be performed and rehearsed, they were still, they had satirical elements, they, they had messages or themes to impart, and they had a higher meaning. Just They were more than just entertainment. They were forms of discussion so that it's 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 amazing that that still hangs on even when you might think the religious element is taken away it always has a deeper meaning yeah and it's interesting that 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 cult of dionysus comes out of the middle east Mm -hmm. we think so somewhere so it was strange something new and different to the greeks who were all and we're probably talking about the seventh or eighth century bc so they had some sort of culture going i mean they were city states by that point but they this new cult is attractive to them mm-hmm. and perhaps it's no coincidence that it involves wine and singing and dancing <laughs> and religion and i guess that um takes us to the the point where that becomes an entertainment and a religion mm-hmm. or something spiritual it's um it's amazing that the journey that dionysus went on from being something that the upper echelons of community were were very explicitly trying to repress. And then um, I can't remember the name of the exact king uh, or ruler, but he was quite a big fan of Dionysus. And so when he, he started instituting Dionysus um, as a powerful god in his, uh, uh, he, he, as, as his god, that's when Dionysus became more beloved among the upper class. And so it's really funny that Dionysus went from um, being, <laughs> because it's, it's of notice, it's, of, it's very interesting that early Dionysus cult was made up of women, slaves, and non-citizens. And then suddenly he became very much absorbed by the wider community. But first and foremost, he had always been a god of these might maybe not minority group is not the correct term to use, but definitely socially considered powerless groups. Um, and that was very much still reflected in his worship because women were primarily in charge of the worship of Dionysus. 
there seems to be this intensity about that worship as well. Whenever we hear about the Minyads, they they are in this ecstatic state or, uh, you know, doing some outrageous things when we take it right through to the back eye and, and plays like that. Um, so not plays like that. There is no other play like the back eye. It is quite unique. Very true. Um, but that, so it's, it does seem to have this intensity of feeling about it, which was maybe what was different because you get the impression that the worship of gods otherwise in the Greek society was a much more ritualized and um, staid business, if that's the right word. So for, for Dionysus, the re- wine was consuming uh, watered down alcohol. It had to be, you had to dilute the alcohol. Otherwise I think it was nearly poisonous, um, but you, um, by drinking and imbibing alcohol, you were putting yourself in touch with uh, with the godly way of being. It's uh, it's a bit like I suppose nowadays the, the 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 people might compare it to rock stars taking LSD and seeing the face of God and writing very cool music. Um, so these early cults of Dionysus believed that by drinking alcohol they were welcoming Dionysus into their beings. And for that moment of inebriation, and by obviously performing all the rituals, they were communing very, very strongly to the point where they were inhabited by their god. So these wild moments of abandon, again, not only were they incredibly defiant of the social structures, because it was seen as improper for women to behave like this, but here they were, and it was fine because a god was condoning it. It was, it was a socially sanctioned act of rebellion. And the the rendering, the tearing, um, especially in the back eye of human bodies, that is also very reminiscent of early stories about Dionysus, where he was torn apart, and earlier gods that that inspired Dionysus um, from earlier uh, communities. You, it's you can trace these stories to a very there's a very sanitized Athenian version of Dionysus. But then if you look a little bit further back, you see that he was very, he was a very scary pagan, like what you might call a pagan god of um of madness. So even though in later years he became sanitized and much like the wine he was watered down, he was still he still held on to these remnants of the madness and chaos God that he started as. And so you can definitely still see that in the performances. Yes, there was, there's an Egyptian God that's also goes through this tearing, tearing apart. And it's, it's a rebirth ritual, I suppose, um, of, you know, the cycle of nature and what's really at the heart of all of that um, and goes through a course of Christian um, story as well. Uh, and interesting parallels there, actually, because of course Christians were first and foremost female and of lower class when when the cult of Christ, of Christ started in in the Roman period, and the Dionysian cult was not the first one to use um, the odd mind altering substance um, to to enhance their discussions with their gods. Uh, although wine is arguably the best choice because it does you least harm of all of that stuff. And maybe that's why it was successful. <laughs> they lived long enough to tell their stories. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. It's a fascinating journey then, as you say, from from this very wild god to something that actually, it takes a very long time for him to lose that um, image, doesn't it? Because even, even in the earlier Greek times, he's still um, a, a very wild. And when we get to the Bacchae and Euripides, it's, he still is showing Dionysus. Mm as this incredibly dangerous god, but a god that is very present as well. In that case, he's actually on stage mm. as a character. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, but may, I, may I talk a little bit about the involvement of women in, in Greek performance? Would this be an appropriate time to mention that? Yeah, yes, do. Um, yes. <laughs> so it, it's undeniable that the conventions of theatre, it's very clearly recorded that they started with these Dionysian uh, parades and those were primarily orchestrated by women and performed by women but then of course there were men involved and there was that's one of the lovely things about these early bits of um of ritual they often do involve even if a, if a society is very segregated or is by gender by class um it's these rituals often do bring communities together so that was a a, a position of power for women and so 
nothing just happens immediately. So like Dionysus took a long time to become an accepted god in the Pantheon, it took a long time to go from Dionysian parades to the very proper uh, theatrical performances in amphitheaters. Um, so there would there there are elements of crossover with uh, the female parade, who then would start incorporating more song, more storytelling, and most importantly, mime. So women and that we have they've they found uh, vases, which was one of the very uh, clear ways that ancient Greeks used to you know, show everyday life. They would depict them on vases. And uh, according uh, to uh, uh, a historian called Hughes, Alan Hughes, these depict female figures participating in mime and performance. And that was a very early key part of Greek theatre because it was one actor would have to portray many different uh, uh, different characters, and then later two or three actors would would portray lots of different characters. But that all very it started with physically behaving differently, and that technique was pioneered by women and by female figures. And they, even though women are not believed to have been allowed to perform in Athens when theatre became more regulated, there is. There is evidence to suggest that, again, they were still involved. So they would have been involved in making the costumes, based a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, and there, there are depictions of women in orchestras p- uh, playing instruments to accompany uh, the performers. So they were still involved. They just weren't acting. And interestingly enough, in this is only in Athens as well. So obviously that's the, the, a very big... <laughs> seat of power where social rules are very heavily enforced it'd be like in london you'll find social norms of that you might call british are very heavily enforced and then the further you get away the more people behave slightly differently um so in athens everybody has to uh, really has to stick to the, uh, the status quo but in the more rural areas of greece where you don't have an authority breathing down your neck you do see female performers in uh, in public performances. And because it's more rural, they get away with it and it's fine. Um, and there's also uh, still uh, from, uh, from Hughes, there is this there there's a there's a very it was believed for many years by historians mostly started by victorian historians uh they believed and they had a very the victorians had a very clear idea of what greeks were like they and they almost kind of put quite a lot of their own values onto the greeks um that theater was rambunctious and you could not be viewed by women and children this would be terrible for their immortal souls it it could only be endured by men and so they when they were doing their research they found evidence that confirmed their bias that women were not were not encouraged to go to the theater and so they believed therefore women didn't now that's just if a living person in society will know that just because you're not supposed to do something doesn't mean you didn't do it Um, and it's more recently historians have started to believe that women and and non-citizen women children non-citizens could attend theaters and did but they could only that was only if there was room for them so they had to you had to wait outside the amphitheater until all of the men who wanted to attend were in and seated and then if you were and then if there was still room then you could go in and sit down it's a bit like being a student now when you're waiting outside a theater to see if there's any leftover seats and then at the end the usher goes okay yeah quick go in go in <laughs> so it's the women are more present in greek theater Physically, real women are present in Greek theatre than we might expect. And on top of that, um, fictional women are incredibly important to all of the stories in Greek theatre. I don't, 
I really, I, I would struggle to think of a, of a famous Greek story that didn't have an incredibly powerful female figure in it at one point. And they might not necessarily be, they will very often be what we might think of as evil or they, they are doing incredibly morally problematic things like killing their children or <laughs> killing their husbands. But they are still undeniably given positions of power in that fictional narrative uh and they are they are depicted as being as having great sway and that is very interesting because these plays uh definitely were communicating ideas and the idea might have been don't give power to women because this is what they'll do but that's only one reading of it. It could easily have been saying a woman is, uh, women are powerful creatures in their own right. So it's 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 just it's interesting that of and of note that they that women were were shown to be capable of planning, of intellectual thought, of physical and social mobility, which we if you were to look historically at women, you might believe that that wasn't something they could do. But in fiction, they were portrayed as being able to do this. And I, I just think that's very interesting. It is, um, because of course, the, the stories themselves go back into prehistory. And, and the, in a sense, the plays are only repeating a, a story that has been told for hundreds, if not thousands of years already. And they, those, these women are coming from those stories but they're not being watered down in the Greek version. So there is clearly a, a an understanding between the Greeks and their predecessors about what they thought these stories were saying about mm. the role of women. And I guess we might suggest that mm. that goes back to the fact that women were powerful in, in that religious spiritual sense and were a focus of cults and um, perhaps religious activity from the very earliest times. Oh, definitely. And I guess it comes because of the nature of birth and women um, providing life from themselves uh, is probably the basis for that. In storytelling in general, there are so many, there, there, are very, there are multiple themes that come up again and again, but rebirth it seems to be a big one. Again, it goes back to this understanding of, of what is there out there apart from the life that we live and the hope that there is some sort of other life. And the Greeks were not, uh, you touched on it earlier, but the, the Greeks were not afraid that their gods were vengeful and spiteful and very human uh, in, in that sense. Um, they're not benevolent god of Christianity, not even the vengeful god of, of the Old Testament in quite the same way, because they can be fickle and spiteful and all of those things that make them seem extremely human at times. And that seems to be an important part of it for the Greeks, that they have this understanding that gods have failings as well. And it's interesting that, uh, again, the gods were often used uh, as as allegories. So there are various myths that were rewritten uh, by various authors to, mm, they, they used the gods as authority figures to rebel against, if you know what I mean. Uh, so if they were discontent with their current political regime, they would often retell myths in a way that showed the ruling classes to be feckless or un needlessly cruel. And that was a way of, and again, th that would have happened in plays as well. And it was a way of say, it was a way of saying to the to your audience, maybe we maybe we shouldn't have this person as our ruler anymore. They, they, they're not very nice. <laughs> and to go back to what you were saying there about the, um, the, the, the start of theatre, so we've come out of this Dionysian cult, not out of it, but, but it's um, moved into the theatre. It's become this way of telling stories. But that was very static way to start with. We think it was just uh, the male actors in very grand costume reciting their Dithyram um, and really not, it wasn't, it was a performance, but but it was um, theatre of the imagination. I mean, it must have been asking people to think on these stories that we're retelling in the same way a wandering minstrel might have done years later. But that that makes you think that we, we call the theatre, the, the Greeks call the theatre the place of seeing, but actually, of course, they're in the auditorium, they're listening first and using imagination. Uh, and that's a collective experience because the whole, or at least the male part of the population, are in this auditorium in the same time, in the same place, 
and able to see each other because of the horseshoe shape of the auditorium. So a collective social experience that we all hope theatre still is today, but maybe it never has quite been since the Greek times in quite that way. The construct you brought up the construction of the amphitheaters, uh, and we're so lucky that so many uh, of the of these are still. They might be ruined, but we can still see how they worked. They're really interesting from uh, an engineering point of view. So when acoustically an amphitheater is designed to spread the sound of an actor or a performer or just a speaker, because I know that sometimes these spaces were also used for uh, other discussions, um, but they these were through one's ears as effectively as possible. So that horseshoe shape, the fact that there's no... When people, when bums are on seats, there, are, there aren't that many flat uh, spaces for the sound to hit and be lost. Uh, so the, the, the shape of it uh, and the fact that the audience is sitting there and working as absorbers, it allows any reflections to reflect back into the audience. And so... It, that space makes sure that you have to listen, you have to hear what they want to say. And that's very clever engineering. There was a, a tiering to it and that, again, you could design a soundscape that, that would really influence the way that your message was received. So obviously there was a seated area for the audience. There was the orchestra stage for the chorus and and the raised area for the main cast there might also be an altar um occasionally there there are dressing rooms for actors to quickly run behind set and come back in as another person with a different mask uh, if they didn't have to do that change on stage uh and then of course behind in some of the later theaters you could they were mechanical wonders that could be used to lift people on and off stage but that, of course, like you said, that comes later. First and foremost, it's about the sound. So the human voice has amazing potential. It's incredibly melodic and our ears are fine-tuned to pick up on human voices. That's what we're constantly listening for. They're at the exact right frequency for us. Very often you might find, even if you're watching the TV or you might find yourself kind of looking around the room or drifting off, but you're still very, you're, you're still focusing on the sounds. And we, obviously we don't, we can't know exactly what it was like to be in, to be a Greek in, in one of these theatres, but they have, so the Olivier theatre is designed and, and based on these are these Greek theatres. Yes, that's the main theatre uh, space at the National Theatre in London. Yes. And so by so we might not know what the Greeks felt, but we can go to that space today and sit in it and we can somewhat experience what they might have experienced. And it is a very interesting auditory experience if you're doing that. And it, it, it does one thing that the that the radio plays and that um, podcasts and, and radio shows still do today is utilize the amazing powers of the human imagination. So the before they have mechanical ways to lower an, uh, somebody on stage or physically make them look like a god, they could tell you about a god and your brain is the most amazing special effects team in that will ever be because you can design and create worlds and that so the early early performers and early writers would have really relied on that and they really worked to they made you work <laughs> right but and that must have been well just an innate thing because from whenever man started performing you know if it was mm. the the hunter coming back from the hunt and telling his clan about why he didn't have a carcass behind him or, or why he did, <laughs> when, when he was standing in the cave performing that out for them. That was, I mean, I like to think that's how theatre started, with somebody coming home and saying, or maybe even not being able to express it verbally, but, being, but acting out and casting a shadow in the fire to say, this is what happened today. So if we've been doing that since, you know, we were hunters out in the wild, 
then it's not surprising that theatre develops as theatre of the imagination. And what we do is develop performance elements around it and then eventually conventions um, that mean if we go this way, we're heading off to out into the world. If we go another way off stage, you know, when you're not seeing a character, it means they can't be they can't hear what's going on. So all of those things are come after the basic listen to this and think about what I'm saying. And I, I like I like that image too, especially of trying to explain to your partner. Um, uh, this is why I don't have uh, food today, darling. Um, <laughs> but I suppose it's also a helpful way to explain to people why something happened uh, it further back. So, for instance, we know that when, not to overly compare us to animals, but when uh, very group-oriented uh, animals like elephants uh, or chimpanzees or bonobos lose older members of their group, they, they fall into more danger. They come across more problems, and that's because there isn't an elder reminding them, mm, when a drought happens, we do this, or when things happen, when dangerous things happens, we happen, we go here. So I to build on that idea of here's what's happened, a story, a performance, a theatrical theatrical convention is a really, really memorable way of telling your kids, when this bad thing happens, you go over there and you stay safe. Don't do the thing. Um, so it's I, I think that a lot of a lot of stories are also ways of handing down knowledge that you really need you really need them to remember because kids won't remember anything. <laughs> it's like please listen to me and remember this. <laughs> So I think definitely with the, with the Greek plays, we see that with the, the playwrights are almost preaching to people, um, to their audiences to say, you know, for God's sake, this is what happens when you do something wrong, when you displease the gods or, uh, you know, you, you ignore what they say at your peril. Oh, definitely. That's, I mean, that's particularly true, I think, of Aeschylus um, from the evidence that we have. Uh, maybe less so once you get to Euripides and uh, slightly in Sophocles, because they are really working at a level that's slightly different from Aeschylus. They are talking about society, not such a broad brush way that Aeschylus does. Um, so when we get to Sophocles and then particularly in Euripides, you're talking about how societies function, which is a level a bit below where the gods are they're still involved, but they they tend to be watching and waiting rather than uh, influencing specific actions. And yet you still get people making choices that are basically bad choices and are going to end badly. Yeah. You can kind of imagine the gods with popcorn like, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting to see, uh, see these these stories as explanations for why things happen um and 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 also explanations for why it you take an over-the-top presentation but at the end you can kind of go okay i can see the little choices that were made that led to this so on one level you could blame it all on the gods and say that our choices don't matter but the playwrights don't necessarily ever do that. You can, there's always something that they, you could, as the audience could go, but because he did this, that's why all of this started happening. There's always a point where you can pinpoint and go, ooh, that moment. Yeah. And, and we still write those into plays and other presentations today, don't we? The, these, they, they have some of these tools of the dramatist haven't changed for good reason, because they're the basics of life. Um, and we, we all make decisions at every moment, um, and some of them are bigger than others, and some of them go go wrong sometimes. I'm mean, speaking as a performer. What do you think about? There must have been an urge amongst actors, even way back when in Athens, all those years ago, to do more than just stand and say these words. I definitely think there was, and I think that's how a lot of these things developed. Uh, so, for instance, there's this myth. I don't know if it's um, uh, if it's true. But it's a fun story, and they and Greeks told this story. So um, there was a legend that the first actor was called Thespis, and he, and it was him who began to use masks to portray different characters who stepped out from the chorus line 
and started speaking. And presumably everyone just kind of went along with it and went, okay, Thespis is doing his thing. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep doing the routine, I guess. Um, but they, <laughs> So I do honestly agree with you that a lot of the, the, the actors wanted to express themselves or push like they do today. You want to push and see how you can improve and how you can you can make the performance more exciting for an audience. So the, the story is that Thespis stepped out from the chorus. And I imagine that even though that might not be exactly what happened to, to a man named Thespis, things like that did happen. An actor would go, I have an idea and I'm going to do it. <laughs> and presumably the director was backstage holding his head in his hands. <laughs> but the things that worked, worked. And they were added to theatrical convention. And that's how you end up with this one actor speaking. Well, what if we had a second actor? Oh my God, you know, the, 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 there's so much more possibility there. Or, okay, so now let's, let's we're describing things. That's great. But now let's, let's put costumes on. Let's use masks. Let's all visual aids. So from a modern performer's perspective, I love seeing people smile. Or, feet, or emotions, if I can see the crowd in any way, and you can usually see like maybe one or two people in the front row, if they are emotionally reacting, you, that you feel on top of the world, it's like, yes, best, that is, that is what I wanted. So I imagine that it, it might have been because the actors want, wanted more attention, but in all honesty, I if, in my head, I imagine that the actors really wanted to give the best show that they could. And that's how these innovations happen. Yes, and, and probably to um, support whatever religious point they might have been making as well, because, of course, the whole play was an offering to the gods. I, th I think you're right, though. I, I don't think human nature has mm. changed that much that um, people didn't still want to... Uh, I don't think we know that mm. the Greeks applauded at the end of a performance, but whatever the show of appreciation was for, for the Greek actors, um, I'm sure that they played up to that and wanted to get some more of it. Oh, definitely. That's another interesting cultural thing. Like I really, I, I would be, I would love to find out how a Greek audience behaved. Was there talking? Like, did the audience interact or was it just listening? I would love to know how that was. Suggested that they were quite a rowdy bunch in, in the Greek audience. Um, and you know what? I'm sure they um, had food going around. We were out in the open air, weren't we? Long, long sessions, five, six hours of play watching um, out on the hillside um, under the Acropolis. So uh, you're not telling me they didn't have people flogging drinks mm. and uh, snacks, you know, offering all sorts of, of goodies. Big festivals, people would have been thinking, yes, I can make Make some money here. I'm sure they would have had all that paraphernalia of hawkers and traders on your way in, maybe not selling programs and stuff like that that we would have today when we turn up at a concert or a, a big event. But, you know, the, the equivalent of the hot dog stand or the burger van, I'm betting would have been there. And that would have been part of the reason people went because it was a day out. It was a special day. And I think you see that in Roman times as well, perhaps more obviously because there's a bit more evidence, but um, cer certainly true there. And I remember I was very fortunate when I was young. Um, I went to see the Oberammergau Passion Play. This was in 19, late 1970s. And um, so, you know, we, you, you're all day in the theatre with a break for lunch in this purpose-built theatre. And there was the, the, they were enacting the scenes of um, Jesus throwing the moneylenders out of the temple. And there's guys wandering around the auditorium trying to flog you the English translation so you, so you could follow it. And I mean, I think the irony was lost on them, but um, it wasn't on me even as a 12-year-old, I think I was then, uh, and I didn't understand a word of the German at that point either. I guess there's always some point in interview recordings where something unexpected happens, and for this occasion, we reached that point here. So my next question for Rosie became a bit obscured. To dig deeper into the religious aspects of Greek drama, I asked Rosie about that influence. We know in Greek drama the presence of the religious festival and ceremony were absolutely central and it was still present but waning in the Roman theatre where the central altar of the Greek theatre had been moved to one side and where sacrifice is mentioned frequently by Menander and Plautus in their plays but is rarely mentioned later by Terence and it's never used as a plot driver in those comedies. Seneca did include the use of the altar, remember Medea and her incantations, but only as a point of drama, not for religious purposes. Despite that apparent decline in imperial Rome, I suggested that religion dominated the theatre right up to Christian times. 
Oh, and and still in many, many ways, you could argue it's a, so a, I, I always think and I and I think I'm backed up by anthropological thinking that if you want to know about the belief system of a culture, if you want to know about what they value, look at the, the way they express themselves artistically uh, and they, they, it's look at what they don't tell you as well. It's so, so interesting to see. It's, it's one of the reasons I absolutely love anthropology because it's such a fascinating thing to think about the way that humans spin stories, tell us, we, we, we make a way of being to make sense of our place in the world. And so religion is often a very common way of people to make sense of our way in the world. And regardless of community, you know, and that, and that religion could be an ancestral uh, belief that you're uh, that you are in commun communication with, and being supported by your ancestors, or it could be the belief in a deity. But it was there, there was also this idea of, of of family importance as well. But it's with if a, if a culture, if a religion is such a central part of a culture, it's in everything you do. It's in every way you behave, uh, because you. It, it it doesn't. It's not even just when you're consciously thinking about it. It's in the little actions you do as well, the way you dress, the way you you speak. Uh, they they. It's all learned behaviors that are forged by this community, and so the and, and as we we've discussed, the, the theater of Greece was it was just inherently religious. It started as a religious expression and religious conventions continue to go through it. Like you said, there was always, always, always an altar. And it was, even if it wasn't, ex because even if it wasn't explicitly stated in the text, it would be there. You couldn't look, you could, you could not watch a play and not see it. And that meant that there was so much subtext to whatever, whatever was being said, there was like, it was, it, it was referencing that. And it's, that, that is fascinating in the ways that it's, especially like you said, like often you would have, a, if you had a character that you wanted to show was not doing the right thing, you could, like you said, with media, you could have them curse by the altar or d disavow the gods and, and everyone would know that's not good. And there were little ways of, there were things that had to happen in a play. Like now, if it's a bit like watching pantomime. There has to be a villain. Usually it has to be a man in drag. It has got to be, you have to have a dame. You've got to have, there are little things that if you went to a pantomime and they weren't there, you would see them and you would know. So in Greek theater, it was the same little things. There were things that had to happen. There were, and there were gestures. If you were performing a character that was older, there were certain gestures you would do. There was uh, coming back to mime. And if you were performing a character of power, you would move in a certain way. It, it, it did all come from the, this, the, the gesture based, the mime, the performance of these religious processions. And I would argue that to this day, you are, we are still almost performing our beliefs in society, whether that's, whether we're talking about cautionary tales or a more nuanced uh, gray grayscale look at a at a situation, we're still problem solving like the early Greek playwrights were. They were almost airing their thoughts, thinking, okay, almost thinking aloud, like, okay, so this is this is an idea. What do you as a community think? Yeah, and we can do that even now because, well, I suppose through mass communication channels uh, so we can all watch the same thing on television or at the cinema um, can't quite do that in the theater but we can still get a very similar experience through different productions and of the same play although of course always with a different interpretation but depending on the people who are involved in presenting it from the greek times the playwright was changing the way he told the the fabled story and the way he changed it would presumably have been picked up by the audience because they know these stories and when somebody something is different about it then they probably go ah oh, why has he done that what's he trying to say and it would it would be so important 
the way you told so for instance the story of arachne that and the story of medusa they were both retold to make both of those figures more sympathetic these these all powerful beings suddenly decided that um you you were you were somehow offending them so in the original story arachne was very much provoking <laughs> Athena and challenging her and saying, yes, I am the best weaver, come at me. <laughs> um, whereas in uh, later retellings, it, she, it was Athena that spotted her weaving and decided, you are, you're, I, I'm jealous of you. I'm going, to, I'm going to take you down. And the same with Medusa. In the early stories, Medusa was just a monster, straight up monster. That's, that's how that started. Then in later retellings, it was a woman that had been cursed because she'd been sexually assaulted in Athena's temple. And so instead of the, uh, attacking the god that had assaulted her, Athena decided, no, you were somehow at fault here. Become Medusa. So that would have, been, to an audience that had grown up with these stories, very often religious stories, to change little things like that, you would immediately be switched. It'd be like if we were retelling one of the, the stories from the Bible and suddenly instead of uh, throwing out the money lenders, Jesus uh, befriended them and started like trading in the stock market, we'd all go, hang on, what? <laughs> you're, you're making a comment on something. What are you talking, you know, so that it'd be the same for the Greek audiences. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because the, the, these stories are so well known because they were repeated, presumably, you know, from bedtime stories as kids, right through to hearing them mm. as adults and perhaps understanding more about what they truly might mean to, to you in your, in your mm. society. Um, and there's also mm. a fear, there's always a bit of a fear of the outsider, which I think, again, is another thing we see a lot of, um, and quite understandably, probably because people didn't travel around as much. And when the stranger came to your town, your village, it was probably a big event. And you had to wonder why they were there, what they were up to, were they dangerous? Travel itself was a mm -hmm. dangerous thing mm -hmm. in those days, brigands on the road and uh, any other sort of natural thing that might happen to you while you're walking. I mean, you know, twist an ankle while you're between towns in those days and you couldn't just pick up the phone and call the doctor that's it you you might die <laughs> well done you 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 got a splinter you might die undeniably quite xenophobic as a community um <laughs> very very problematic but you um you still you see uh like like it with plays portraying women is incredibly powerful and you have to wonder what the playwrights were saying when they did that again it's like retelling of the stories hmm what were you trying to say there storytellers um they there were a few instances of um people of color who were from uh they, and again the, the, they're never quite in the plays they're never like here is this handy location where these people were from so you can't exactly say but they are very much the dialogue tells us that they are people of color and interestingly enough the problems they face uh, with a, in a modern society with modern problems, you might expect that they were going to face racism because of the color of their skin, because that is the very prevalent problem in our modern day society. And it was, it was in this play. It's not that they're black. It's that they're foreign. They're from a different culture. They're from a different culture and the Greeks. So the people in the play, and actually, these they're portrayed very sympathetically. They are the heroes of this of this particular play, where it's a it's about a land rights um, arrangement about whether this woman own is still entitled to the property of her husband, and in the end, she it's, she's portrayed incredibly sympathetically, and it's so it's really interesting that we uh, with. In many ways in that society, there were so many problems and so many so many things that to a modern viewer are just repugnant, uh, you know, slavery, um, the treatment of women and minorities. But in other ways, you could see how the culture, how cultures change and how values change. And you can often you can often see it in performance where they would say, say things like, hmm maybe the person who is from another country is still worthy of our respect. And you can see cultures, cultural ideas starting to shift. 
alongside this fear of the unknown, there's also some sort of willingness to actually find out if these people are friendly. And I guess that probably means useful. You know, can we trade with them? Can, can what can we give? What can we, what can we sell them? Um, <laughs> exactly. They, yeah. And and the, through all of that, the Greeks mm-hmm. held their own identity very much, unlike the Romans, who kind of absorbed just everybody they met, but they also absorbed a lot of, and particularly in the Greek sense, absorbed a lot of their culture. Welcome to Rome. How do you fancy basically becoming one of us? There are, I love, I love the stories from, from the Roman conquest of Southern Italy and, and uh, Greece, because there's so much, you know, we're going to come and walk all over you, but, um, you know, we actually quite like some of what you do and we're going to copy it and try and make it better. And usually they don't, they don't succeed. It is actually hilarious in many ways. Um, it's, it's really, really funny when they get to Britain and they hear about um, the uh, different gods and different uh, important figures, and they retroactively fit them into their pantheon. So they'll say, they'll say, ah, oh, here is our god uh, Odin. And they'll say, oh, that's Hermes. <laughs> and everyone in that community is like, what? What are you talking about? It's like, no, no, no. That's just one of our gods that has come here and has just, and has revealed themselves to you in this way. <laughs> and I love that, that logic. Is very, it's very funny, but also kind of sweet. And although we could have gone on talking for much longer, we left it there. My thanks to Rosie for her time. She really brought the subject to life and it was great to have such an in-depth conversation with her. Please do have a listen to her podcast, which is quite difficult to describe, so I'll let her do that herself. Well, I suppose for your listeners, uh, if you are interested in theatre, uh, theatrical conventions, then hope then you might like uh, my podcast. So my podcast is called Yorick Radio Productions, and we have a variety of subjects we cover, but we are always focused on creativity and performance. So we have historical documentary style episodes where we look at theatrical movements like absurdism. Uh, we look at pantomime. We've uh, we've looked at uh, we've looked at ghosts in theatre and how ghosts have influenced the way we tell stories. But then we also talk to writers and playwrights. We interview them about their their style, uh, how their journey. Um, and then we sometimes have plays on uh, and, and readings of stories. So we, we, we cover quite a lot of ground, but it's always based around performance. And once more, my thanks to Rosie. I've put all those details in the show notes so you can easily find her and the Yorick Radio podcast. Next time, we'll be talking Greek theatre in performance with theatre director, actor and aerial performer Tamsin Shashar. I look forward to your company then, but in the meantime, please take a look at the new website for the podcast. That's www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com and don't forget to join the Facebook group. Details are again in the show notes. If you have any comments or concerns, you can always reach me by email on thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.